Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Lawyer's Toolbox on Your Law Talk Radio. This is your host, Nick Augustine, the law publicist. This show is produced by Law Publicist Communications, a legal marketing and public relations agency serving law firms and business professionals. The production of Your Law Talk Radio is funded by sponsor donations and advertising. We work hard to bring you new and pragmatic content on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons. Today's guest is Donna M. Adler. After having practiced law for over 25 years, Chicago attorney Donna Adler has built her career incorporating education and service to local professional and business communities. Donna Adler's outreach includes advising on legal issues in several practice areas, including without limitation, general and civil and commercial litigation, criminal defense, and administrative law. Donna Adler's office is located in DuPage County in Oak Brook Terrace, Illinois. You can find more about her on her website, which is www. Donna M. Adler Law LLC, which is D O N N A M A D L E R L A W L L C dot com. And we want to tell you we have a great show for you this afternoon. We are open to callers with any questions or comments. Of course, our programming is politically neutral and objective. Your counterpoints are always welcome. Telephone number to dial in is 917-889-9732, option one for the caller queue. That number again is 917-889-9732. Quick disclaimer, we want to let you know this is a general information program. Advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Communications with attorneys on this show does not give rise to attorney-client relationships. Also, Law Talk Radio does not necessarily endorse all of the opinions expressed by guests. Callers remain confidential, and rights to this broadcast are reserved. We have three upcoming events we want to tell you about quickly before we get into our subject matter today. First, the Chicago Lawyer Magazine's Off the Pages series brings a a series called Taking Care of Business on September 20th, 2011. There are three panels of interest. I'll let you know about them. The first is, number one, how to grow your book of business in a challenging economy. Second, building a relationship with your in-house lawyers. And third, motivating and keeping young talent. The panelists presenting at this event are top attorneys and executives with valuable insight. The event will be held from 7.30 to 11 a.m. at the University Club in Chicago. For early bird registration and more information, please contact Olivia Clark for more information at 312-644-4033. You can also email her at O-C-L-A-R-K-E at L-B-P-C dot com. MCLE credit is pending for this event and sponsorship opportunities are available. Now, there's a second Chicago Lawyer Magazine Off the Pages series event that's going to be in October. The date for that is October 18th, 2011. The title is Taking Diversity Seriously. The following panels will be presented. Number one, being a woman in this legal industry, how do you navigate the challenging waters? And number two, a detailed look at local diversity statistics. In addition, Chicago Lawyer presents keynote speaker Aaron Reeves of NextGens. Reeves is a Chicago Lawyer columnist and diversity expert who will present, quote, a status report on diversity, end quote. This event will also take place from 7.30 to 11 a.m. at the University Club in Chicago. Again, contact Olivia Clark at Law Bulletin Publishing for more information, 312-644-4033. Also, if you are in DuPage County on September 22, 2011, you should attend the Collaborative Law Institute of Illinois West Suburban Practice Group's annual open house. Come to Carlucci's Restaurant in Lombard at the intersection of Interstate 355 and Butterfield Road from 5 to 7 p.m. and meet the attorneys, financial, and mental health professionals who team up to provide collaborative divorce solutions. Guests will include professionals who might want to become collaborative law fellows, as well as family judges from the DuPage Family Law Division and affiliate professionals who are utilized in the collaborative process. For your invitation, please email Ms. Connie Walsh at Connie, C-O-N-N-I-E, at yourfinancialdivorce.com. Again, that's Connie at yourfinancialdivorce.com. 
Now moving into our subject matter for today, this is episode two in a series of ten shows devoted to the impact on civil liberties of laws passed since 9-11-2001 to enhance national security. Attorney Donna M. Adler leads us through chronology from the 9-11, the days of the events of the day on 9-11 and up through the 9-11 Commission report and several major pieces of legislation, including but not limited to the Homeland Security Act, the Patriot Act, Patriot II, the Military Commissions Act, and a number of other acts specifically directed to enhancing that national capacity to fight terrorism. Ms. Adler will discuss the potential for abuse of civil liberties left by such national securities legislation, as well as measures passed since 9-11-2001 directed to strengthening protections for civil liberties, such as uh, civil liberties against such abuses. She will devote some time in the series to a discussion of high-profile court cases, helping to define the parameters of the relation between national securities laws and civil liberties. Now, during our last uh, show, when we brought you the part one of this series, we went through a chronology of the day's events, and we are continuing on in part two of that show. Donna, it's great to have you with us today. Nick, it's great to have. Uh, it's great to be with you, as it always is, uh, for these shows. And as we have discussed uh, a number of times now, there's more to do in this series than we can possibly finish in ten sessions. So we may have to do more than ten. Uh, we had agreed it made sense to begin with trying to understand the events of that day, so that we could start with a clear understanding of where the lapses were. Only with that kind of insight and study can we even evaluate the legislation and the other measures taken to try to protect us since then. Of course, it's much more complicated than just what happened on that day, but that's a good beginning. We had started going through the chronology of what had happened on 9-11 to see where things broke down last time. We didn't get all the way through it, so we'll have to do a little bit of recapitulation today. We'll very briefly recapitulate what was happening with the planes. Then um, we will go on in a second sec- segment to what was what was happening at the FAA and what were the military up to during um, this this um, crucial morning for us. Then what was President and his advisors doing? Who got into the loop of information when and why did it seem that communication was so cumbersome that day? Then toward the end of our hour, if we have or our half hour, if we have time, we'll talk about possible um, possible systems that might have been in place that could have perhaps uh, prevented some of what happened. Let's start with um, let's start with the, the timeline for the first plane. We won't go through it in as great a detail as we did last time, but we will we will simply look at some crucial times. First, um, American Airlines 11 takes off from Boston. It's going to Los Angeles at 7:59 um, 7:59 a.m. About 15 minutes later, it has its last routine radio communication um, with uh, with the traffic control center. 8:19, five minutes later is the first news that there's been a hijack. It comes from a flight attendant who notifies the American Airlines Reservations desk. So keep that time, 8.19, in mind. Okay, now American Airlines um, is not directly contacting, it's not directly in contact with um, Boston Center, the FAA at this point. Boston Center, which is um, the FAA center, that regional FAA center that was tracking, keeping track of, of American Airlines 11 because it was in its, its territory, becomes aware of, of the hijacking independently at 8.25 a.m. So that's six crucial minutes between the time there's a first notification of a flight attendant to the American Airlines reservation desk and the time Boston Center becomes aware that the plane is hijacked. At 8.28 a.m., three minutes later, Boston Center calls the command center in Herndon to advise it that it believed American Airlines had been hijacked. So it was still speculating about there was, whether there was a real hijack, although it, um, the Boston Center was concluding that there had been. But again, 8.28, that is um, at 8.19, Betty Ong had contacted American Airlines Flight Reservation Desk and had said the plane was being hi- hijacked. So you had a first-hand witness report at 8.19, and at 8.28, um, Boston Center is calling the command center in Hurden to say, we think, okay, that there's been a hijack. At 8.32 a.m., that's four minutes later, the Herndon Command Center passes word of a possible hijacking to the operations center at FAA headquarters. So it's just a possible hijacking still for the FAA while American Airlines knows, okay, that there has been a hijacking. The FAA headquarters began to follow its hijack protocol, but it did not um, contact the National Military Command Center to request a fighter escort, okay, at this point. 
Okay, so um, no one. This is 12 minutes after the first awareness of uh, the first awareness that somebody had. Okay, after you know of a problem um, at the F- FAA at 8:37, 52 a.m. And keep that keep that time 8:19 in mind. Boston Center, because 8:19 is the first time or first moment anyone had some kind of notice that there was a hijack, even though it was American Airlines and not the um, Boston Center. Boston Center was later, as you'll recall. Boston Center reaches needs at 8.37, advises needs, okay, that they had a hijacked aircraft. So at this point, they've made a conclusion that they've got a hijacked aircraft, and they're asking um, needs to needs to scramble some jets. Okay, so needs is aware of a problem. Okay, at 8.38 a.m., they, they notify needs again. This is 8.38. Keep, again, keep in mind, this is 19 minutes after um, there was the first awareness of a problem by someone. Um, at 8.46, Need scrambles an Otis fighter jet in search of AA-11. So that's about oh, the difference between 8, what is it, between 8.37 and 8.46. Okay, it takes Needs that long to scramble, but they don't know where to send the jets. So there's confusion at that level. And, and note, okay, at this point, Needs knows that there's something wrong, knows that there's a hijack. Okay, may not be yet aware that the hijack is part of an attack on um on our national defense, but must have some inkling of this because they've been asked to scramble fighter jets. The commander-in-chief of the United States doesn't know anything that's going on. At 8.46.40 a.m., American Airlines crashes into the World Trade Center. Now, there's confusion that follows after that. Um, when, when there are reports from the FCC to come back and they think for a while that, that American Airlines um, 11 is still in the air after it's crashed into the World Trade Center. So there's some confusion over what actually what aircraft actually crashed for a while. But it's 8.46.40 a.m., the plane, the plane crashes. All right. Shortly after... 8:50 p.m. Word reaches needs. Okay, a.m. Rather, words reaches needs that a plane hit um, the, the World Trade Center. So this is four minutes later. Okay, word re- reaches needs that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. So that's the first plane. Okay, and if you just think about the uh, lack of communication, the first thing that strikes me is that there's a lack of communication or an apparent lack of communication between um, the private airline that learns first of the hijack and. Um, the um, air traffic controllers. There doesn't seem to be any direct communication um, with the airline, but perhaps that's not necessary because the air traffic controllers can be in contact with the planes. Who knows? But uh, Boston Center was, in, at any rate, not um, not certain or, or confirmed in their opinion that there was a hijack until uh, six minutes after uh, American Airlines was was sure that there was a was sure that there was a hijack. How about the how about the second plane? What goes on with that? So. No one knows, and I think it's important, needs knows that there's a problem with a hijacked craft, and the commander-in-chief of the United States does not know. So there's no communication going, going on there at that point. Well, how about the second, how about the second plane? The second plane is United, is United Airlines, 175. It's also going from Boston to Los Angeles. It takes, it takes, um, um, it takes off around 814, about the last time of the last routine radio communication of American Airlines 11. Okay, so um, what happens with this plane? At 8.42, kids, that's a little bit less than um, half an hour later, there's a last radio communication of United Airlines um, 175. Then um, 8.42 to 8.46, likely takeover of United, uh, of United Airlines 175. Okay, how do we know? Because the transponder code changes right around 8.47 a.m., and um, it changes twice within a minute. Now, the FAA doesn't notice these changes at first because uh, the same New York Center traffic controller um, monitoring that plane was also monitoring American Airlines 11. But four minutes later, um, the New York Center traffic controller that was watching UA-175 notices a transponder change and tries to contact the airline. Uh, So New York traffic controllers are trying unsuccessfully to contact um, United Airlines 175. Then at 8.52, you get the first confirmation, first notification of someone that there was a definite hijack. Uh, A flight attendant notified United Airlines in San Francisco that there was a hijack of United Airlines 175. So, again, the airline airline has noticed first. At 8.53, a minute later, the New York Center air traffic controller is still saying, we might have a hijack. 
So 854, 855, they're still trying to contact UA-175. They can't contact the, um, they can't contact the pilot. Uh, the controller in charge um, is reporting his suspicions of a hijack to, to the manager. All right, so 8.58, they're still saying we might have a hijack. And keep 8.52 a.m. in mind. Again, um, that's when the flight attendant notified United Airlines in San Francisco we have a hijack at 8.58. The New York Center controller is still saying we might have one. Okay, so UA-75 takes a heading toward New York City. Um, then um, 9.01 to 9.02 a.m., uh, a manager from New York Center advises the Herndon Command Center, that's the Central Air Traffic Control Center, that there were several situations going on. Um, they referred vaguely to other aircraft um, in the air. At 9.03 a.m., New York Center calls needs and tell, to, to, to tell NORAD about a second hijacked plane. And again, um, this is 11 minutes after the airline first knew you have New York Center calling needs um, to talk about a second hijacked um, United Air, Airlines, or rather a second hijacked plane, it was United Airlines um, 175. Well, again, needs gets notification too late really to respond effectively, and at 9.03 um, a.m. and 11 seconds, United Airlines 175 crashes into um, the second world, uh, the two, two World Trade Center, the South Tower. Again, um, Needs knows about a second plane now, and the Commander-in-Chief, the Commander-in-Chief knows nothing. Okay, about this time, Vice President Dick Cheney is um, being told by his assistant to turn the television on because a plane had just struck the, the World Trade Center. Now, that's, not, that's not funny. Okay, <laughs> Needs knows, and, and, and um, the Commander-in-Chief does not. Yes. Donna, it is very, it's very concerning, and no, it is not funny. It's, 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 it's upsetting to think about the amount of time that that can take. Thank you for this uh, quick recap. We're going to pause quickly for our first set of commercial breaks, and then we're going to get back to uh, the history of what happened here and move forward. Our first commercial That's sponsor right. comes from the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Does your marketing materials and slogans infringe on another's intellectual property rights? You should find out. Attorney Chicagoland attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity yet guard against trademark infringement, call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme at 708-444-790. Number again is 708-444-7900. You can also visit them online at nkdlaw.com for more information. Secondly, from Peak Marketing and Sales Incorporated, if you haven't met Mary or Lane that, then you should pay attention and listen up. She will help you make more money. Mary is well-known all over the Chicagoland area for her executive coaching and unique abilities in helping people with connecting the dots and removing the barriers to business goals. Mary is president of Peak Marketing Sales Incorporated, and these renowned coaching and consulting services are available to businesses, associations, organizations, and teams who want to bring about measurable results. Call Mary today at 630-768-1422. Again, that's 630-768-1422. You can also visit Peak Marketing online at peakmsi.com. Next, from Law Publicist Communications, Law Publicist Communications is a legal marketing and public relations agency serving Chicagoland lawyers and business professionals. Many people hire us to write their marketing material, blog articles, and press releases that we then use to promote and manage our clients' webinars, events, and media coverage. We are a full-service agency, and you'd be surprised how many ways we can help you. Give us a call today at 312-505-2604 to see how we can help put you on the map and keep you there. The telephone number again, 312-505-2604. Now as we get back to our show, we want to remind our guests out there, if you have any suggestions for content or uh, Law Talk Radio guests, please drop us a note on uh, our website through our contact portal or through our Facebook page. You can find that by simply searching for Law Talk Radio in Facebook or on Google. Now back with Donna Adler, we're talking, we were just talking about how the first plane had hit and the amount of time it took for the vice president then Dick Cheney to be uh, urged to turn on the television and witness the events of that horrible day. Donna, let's continue. Okay, very quickly with the third and fourth planes. At 8.20, the third plane takes off. That's American Airlines 77. It's going from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles. There are 58 passengers on board. At 8.46 a.m., right about the time the first plane crashes into the World Trade Center, this third plane reaches its cruising altitude. At 8.51 a.m., 
so that is, let's see, 8.51 a.m. would be five minutes later. The last routine communication um, with American Airlines occurs with the Air Traffic um, Control Center. It's likely that between 8.51 and 8.54 a.m. the plane was taken over because right about that time, 8.54, American Airlines 77 makes an unauthorized turn to the south. Now, it's flying west, so um, the Air Traffic Control Center that's, that's tracking AA-77 would have been the Indianapolis Center, but the Indianapolis Center didn't see the plane make an unauthorized turn. At 8.56, two minutes later, the transponder of American Airlines 77 is turned off. Okay, so um, that's just two minutes after the unauthorized turn to the south, which is the first sign, first sign of trouble that no one, no one notices. 9 o'clock a.m., okay, so how many minutes later is that? Okay, 9.56, four minutes later, American Airlines Executive President um, Gerard Arpey learned the communications have been lost with American Airlines 77. Okay, now, again, it's the, it's the, it's the private airline that has the first notice that there's something um, drastically wrong. He immediately orders all American Airlines flights in the Northeast that had not taken off to remain on the ground. So he grounds American Airlines flights, a private if this is a private ground stop for the private airline. Um, shortly after 9 a.m., the Indianapolis Center started notifying other agencies that American Airlines 77 was missing, but the center thought the plane perhaps had, had crashed, and, of course, that's not what happened. At 9.05 a.m., American Airlines 77 reemerges as a primary target on the Indianapolis Center radar screens, east of its last known, um, known position, but no one in Indianapolis um, knows that it has reappeared. They're missing. Um, they're missing the signs. American Airlines headquarters, by 9.05, they were sure, they knew for sure, that American Airlines 77 had been, had been hijacked. So, again, they have the certain knowledge well before the um, FAA Regional Traffic Control Center. Finally, 909, um, Indianapolis Center reported the loss of con contact to the FAA um, Regional Center, wider regional center. At 9.10, AA-77 passes from Indianapolis Center's airspace into the western portion of, of Washington, um, Washington D.C.'s airspace, Washington Center's. All right, now what's really not funny is that at 9.12 a.m., mom on the ground knows that there's been a hijack before the um, regional FAA centers are even sure. American Airlines knows, and a passenger on the plane calls mom. Renee May calls her mom, Nancy May, in Las Vegas, says the flight was being hijacked. So a private citizen on the ground knows that there's a hijack before the regional center of the FAA is sure there's a hijack and well before um, well before anyone it needs knows that there's a third hijack. So you have pri private citizens with more information than your government at this point. Um, at 9.20 a.m., Indianapolis Center becomes aware that there were other hijacked aircraft, begins to doubt its initial assumptions that American Airlines 77 had crashed. Herndon Command, Command Center about a minute later um, and some FAA field facilities start to search for this plane. They fear. They still fear that it's hijacked. They don't know for sure. They don't know for sure more than um, almost almost eight to ten minutes after a private citizen knows for sure that the plane has been hijacked. Finally, at 9.25 a.m., the Herndon Command Center advises FAA headquarters that AA-77 had definitely been hijacked. That's 13... Um, that's 13 minutes after mom knows. 9.32 a.m., Dulles Tower observes a radar of fast-moving aircraft, Dulles Airport in Washington, later identified as AA-77. Um, they observe the target. They notify Reagan National. Okay, finally, um, at 9.34 a.m., FAA advises NEEDS that American Airlines 77 is missing. So NEEDS gets notification, but NORADS um, heard nothing. Now, when does, when does this plane crash? Again, NEEDS gets Notice too late to do anything. FAA advises needs that AA is missing. Three minutes later, this plane crashes into the Pentagon. Okay. Now at this point, um, Rumsfeld, the Defense Department gets 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 direct knowledge that there have been there has been at least one hijack because it is the direct witness to that hijack. Se Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld is is on the ground. All right. How about the fourth plane? So in all three cases, needs got notice far too late to do anything effective. Okay. How about the fourth plane. Fourth plane, of course, is United Airlines 73. Plane number four, let me see if I can um, determine the takeoff time of that plane. It takes off at 8.42 a.m., shortly before the first plane crashes. 
right around the same time as the last radio routine radio communication of um, and likely takeover of the second uh, of the second plane. So it takes off at 8:42. It has an untroubled history for a little while. About 40 minutes after takeoff, United Airlines gets um, gets a warning from Ed Ballinger, a United flight dispatcher, who took independent initiative on his own, initiative on his own, not because he was told by anyone to do it, to transmit a warning to his six, 16 transcontinental flights for which, for which he was responsible to beware of co- cockpit intrusion. So United Airlines um, 93 gets, gets this warning. They received this warning. Shortly thereafter, at 9:27, at 9:24, um, Flight 93 receives another warning from United Airlines about possible cockpit intrusion. 9:27, last routine radio communication. 9:28, likely takeover. Um, the Cleveland controller in charge of UA 93 at 9:30. Uh, pulls other flights on his frequency because he hears sounds of screaming in connection with that flight. Shortly after 9.32, the passengers of UA-93 begin making a series of calls from their GTE airphones and cellular phones to family and friends. So again, mom, dad, brother, sister, daughter on the ground um, know that this country is under attack before, um, maybe that's inaccurate, they know that there's a hijack before, um, before needs knows about this plane, before um, the commander-in-chief knows about this plane, citizens on the ground know about this, about this plane. 934 Herndon Command Center advises FAA headquarters that UA-93 is hijacked. Okay, so they know for sure it's hijacked by this time. Um, they're observing, um, the Cleveland controller is observing um, strange flight patterns, climbing. Um, he, meets, he moves aircraft out of its way. Um, they're, they're tracking the plane throughout 939. Um, they hear a second announcement from United um, Airlines 93 that there might be a bomb on board because there have been speculations about that um, from among passengers on the on the plane. 9:41, the transponder is turned off. So far, no one's contacted needs about this on um, plane yet. 9:46, Herndon updates FAA headquarters that um, that UA 93 was 21 minutes out of Washington. A passenger revolt begins at 9:57. Finally, this plane finally crashes. Okay, at 10:08 a.m. Now keep that in mind, and then let's talk about when there was um, some kind of notice that um, there was something wrong with this wrong with this plane. 10:08, 10:08 it cra- it crashes. At 9:27 there's the last routine communication. 9:32 someone on the ground knows the passengers uh, relatives of passengers on the ground know that there's a hijack. So 9:32 passengers on the ground know. 10:08 this plane crashes. No one notifies needs about UA 93. All right. So there are citizens on the ground, and there's a whole almost there's more than half an hour of time there between first notice to someone and the crash of that airplane. Okay. So what's not what's not happening? Where did the communication break down? Um, it seems that there was a link between uh, a lapse of communication between private airlines themselves, um, lack of communication there between the private carriers. Um, when the private carriers knew, they knew first, and then there was a lag time between um, the time they knew and the time the um, FAA regional centers knew. Then there was a huge lag time, okay, on the FAA end from the regional centers to um, once Herndon knew, Herndon seemed to sit on a lot of information before it contacted um, the Northeast Air Defense Sector. And then it gave that sector incomplete information so that um, – the the air defense did not know where to send planes or what to do, and three times out of four, and the fourth time um, they are they aren't contacted before the the plane crashes. But three times out of four, they get noticed much too late to do anything effective. And in either of the three cases where they had notice, um, is there any indication that uh, anyone from Needs contacted? Um, Anyone in the um, president's circle or the commander in chief, the commander in chief doesn't know, and uh, the needs the needs um, centers do know. So that's kind of the re- recapitulation on what was happening with with the planes. And it's troubling to me that there was um, such such um, awkward communication or uh, such a lagging communication between the um, the FAA and the military that there seems to have been a real breakdown there. Any thoughts on that yourself? 
Well, you know, it's. I, I'm hoping that some of the legislation, once we get to that and start talking about that, will have cured some of these problems. I I think it's really, again, it's very shocking and disarming. I can remember watching the news clips about then-President Bush finding the news out while he was reading to children and continued to read to the children. Um, you know, I'm not going to make a comment on that, but again, so many problems that a citizen on the ground, someone's mother knows about a higher, you know, the terrorist hijack of the planes before our government does. That's a very disconcerting um, area, and I, I, I hope that our government hasn't reacted with legislation that's um, <laughs> creates things to be a little bit more difficult than it needs to be, but that's where we're going in this series, as long as it takes us to continue to explore this. We're going to pause quickly for our second set of uh, commercial sponsor messages and then get right back into this. Um, our fourth commercial sponsor is Jim Thompson and his Get Clients Now program. If you need more clients, there's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach you need to talk to. His name's Jim Thompson, and his program's called Get Clients Now. He'll help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenue. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Please visit their website for more information. It's LawyersMarketingResource.com. Again, LawyersMarketingResource. You can also check out their testimonials on this site. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson directly by calling him at 708-785-4022. Again, that's 708 708- 785-4022. He also has email, which is jet at midwestconsultants.net. That's plural, midwestconsultants.net, jet at midwestconsultants.net. Okay, our fifth commercial sponsor is credit damage expert George Finder. Your credit score is a valuable asset. Credit damage expert George Finder is an expert who can put a dollar amount to damage to your credit score. By learning to incorporate credit damage questions into the intake process, you and your staff will learn how to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Available nationwide, credit damage expert George Finder is available for consulting on damage to credit reputation, and his website with more information and a very helpful video is creditdamageexpert.com. Again, that's creditdamageexpert.com. All right, our final commercial sponsor of the day are the software and technology attorneys at Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC. Software licensing agreements, cloud computing, and software selection all fall on the desks of the attorneys at Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC. This international software technology and intellectual property firm is based in Chicago and leads the way in software and technology law. Before entering into private practice, Principal Marcus Harris worked as a senior corporate counsel at SSA Global Technologies, a global software vendor. Marcus also worked in the legal contracts department of SAP Technologies, drafting and negotiating hundreds of technology-related agreements with SAP's Fortune 500 customer base. Today, Marcus leads a talented team who are ready to step up and navigate the legal and business issues in software, technology, and intellectual property. Call Marcus Stephen Harris today for more information at 312-263-0570. Their website is mshtechlaw.com. Again, mshtechlaw. And again, the telephone number is 312-263-0570. We want to also remind our listeners as we get back to the program to please share our broadcast links in your social networks. Many people find our shows on their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages. We thank you all for your support in sharing our programming. Now back to Donna Adler. Thanks, thanks, Nick. I just want to follow up on what you had uh, what you had uh, had said about uh, monitoring legislation as we go forward. It's worth going through this um, chronology in detail just so that when we examine legislation later, we can see how much of this legislation is actually focused on remedying the kinds of communication gaps there were that day. I think that's a critical question to keep our focus on that and how much goes way beyond that, um, how much of what goes way beyond is necessary, and how much... Um, if, if it all loses focus on, on what broke down that day. And I'm not suggesting that we have tunnel vision about just what broke down that day, but it's a good place to start if we're going to um, think about and understand holes in what our national um, security and um, de- 
defense mechanisms were on that on that day. Let's try to track what the FAA and the military were doing. I had said that I'm disturbed by what appears to have been a breakdown in communication or slow communication there. Now, going back to 8.32 a.m., um, when the FAA her, FAA's Herndon Command Center passed word of a possible hijacking of, of American Airlines 11 to its operations center at um, FAA headquarters, the security personnel at the headquarters had just begun discussing that apparent hijack on a conference call with their New York regional office. Now, the FAA headquarters, as I had said before, began to follow their hijack protocol but didn't contact the National Military Command Center to request a fighter escort. They immediately established a teleconference among their Boston, New York, and Cleveland centers so that they would understand what was happening. So they weren't even thinking outside the the box of their agency at this point. Uh, It wasn't until 9 a.m., after the first plane crashes, they still have not taken the initiative to contact the National Military Command Center. But it's the National Military Command Center, in response to the crash of American Airlines 11, that reached out to the FAA Operations Center for information. They were advised of the hijacking of American Airlines 11, but no one discussed the scrambling of jets at 9 a.m. after um, after that first plane crashed, and three minutes before the second plane um, crashed into the second World Trade um, Tower Center. So this is just a very slow okay response time, or it seems that communication broke down there when the National Military Command Center had to knock on the door of the FAA and say, "Hey, you guys, a plane crashed into. What's going on?" We haven't heard from you. Uh, that seems to me to be um, a red flag that um, there was a serious communications breakdown at the FAA at that point. Now, the next um, next news we get of um, of action by the FAA, Boston Center was pretty active in monitoring the American Airlines 11 flight, but um, within within minutes of um, the crash of the second plane. At around 9.03, Boston Center had instructed its controllers to inform all aircraft in its airspace of the events in New York and to advise aircraft to heighten cockpit security. This was the Boston Center Command Center. Boston Center asked Herndon Command Center to issue a similar cockpit security alert nationwide. There is no evidence that the Herndon Command Center ever issued a nationwide alert on two planes. Now, what's also interesting is that, um, you know, American Airlines had grounded its plane a good uh, it had grounded its planes well before the Herndon Command Center um, ordered a nationwide ground stop. United Airlines also ordered um, a private air stop of its planes well before the Herndon Command Center issued a nationwide ground ground stop. But this is another breakdown. The Boston Center asked the Herndon Center to issue a cockpit security alert nationwide. Now, one one, um, not caught up in the events that day might say, why are you talking about cockpit security alerts? Why aren't you talking about grounding planes at this point after the crash of the second plane? But there's no evidence that Herndon um, sent the cockpit security alert, and there apparently wasn't a conversation going on um, at that time, about grounding uh, grounding the planes. Um, and 9.07 a.m. again, the FAA controllers at Boston Center, who had tracked the first two hijackings, requested the Herndon Command Center to get messages out to airborne craft to increase security for the cockpit. There's no evidence that Herndon took such such action. As I had said before, there was an independent... Um, there was an independent person who was on his own who on his own initiative for the 16 flights that he was overseeing um, had issued had issued a, a cockpit security um, reinforcement warning that the um, that UA93 um, received. Okay, at 9:08 a.m., the mission crew commander of Needs learned of the second explosion at the World Trade Center, um, and was trying to decide decide against holding fighters in military airspace away from Manhattan. Uh, Needs had scrambled jets in response to Boston Center's request um, that jets be scrambled. But again, as I said, when um, they were aware of that American Airlines 11 situation, they didn't know where to scramble the jets. So, so Needs was kind of um, had jets hanging around, had had um, Otis jets, didn't know where to send the fighters. So. So th- this was an issue. The Otis fighters remained in a holding pattern off of Long Island from 909 to 913. Um, later, Langley flights were placed in, in battle stations. Um, and at the same time, the, North, uh, the um, North American Air Defense had no indication the second plane had been hi- hijacked. Okay, needs new, but, but NORAD uh, apparently did not. Okay, New York Center at 915 advised needs that UA-175 was the second aircraft that crashed into the World Trade Center. Um, what you have then is 
is, is breakdowns in communication between the FAA and the military, as I pointed out first. And the FAA is not reaching beyond its own agency's confines fast enough, okay, to get information out to people. One would think that the FAA, even though it's a civilian agency and in charge of domestic aviation, would have not only contacted, um, taken the initiative to contact um, the military right away as soon as they knew about a hijack. Of course, this is all in hindsight, since no one expected jets to be um, turned into missiles. Um, there was probably a lot of confusion about what the significance of the hijackings um, actually was. So by the time um, you had two planes crash into the um, into the World Trade Center, it seems to me that there should have been a lot more communication between um, the FAA and um, and the military. But people were taking initiative in their own ways, um, in different ways. Needs they had. Um, the National Military Command Center reached out to the FAA, as I said. Well, what's interesting, um, as the chronology um, continues, at 9.20 a.m., after the second plane has crashed, security personnel at the FAA headquarters finally set up a hijacking teleconference with several other agencies, including the Defense um, Department. The um, National Military Command officer who participated said that the um, the call was monitored only periodic because information was sporadic and of little value and there were other tasks to attend to. Um, the FAA manager said, too, that the military participated only briefly before the Pentagon was hit. The teleconference ended up being um, playing no role in the national defense at all. So they, the government tried to, different agencies and government were trying to coordinate at this point by 920, but the first teleconference they set up between the FAA and the Defense Department was not um, one that ended up being, um, being very productive. Okay, when does the when does the uh, president begin to uh, begin to get some news of what's going on? Let's let's work him in here. Well, the first time anybody in the administration seems to um, seems to know anything at all is at 8:55 a.m. Carl Rove, and this is after the crash of the first jet, contacted the president in Sarasota, Florida, where he was visiting the elementary school that you remember from the news, and, and he told him that a small twin-engine plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. Now, that I find almost incredible. Uh, by the time this, this had been on the news, okay, uh, by the time this had happened, there was news coverage of, of what, what had happened in New York, of the first plane crashing into the World Trade Center, and it was evident to everybody watching the news, and apparently everybody but Carl Rove watching the news, that it wasn't a small twin-engine plane that had crashed in the World Trade Center. But this is the information our president's getting in Sarasota, Florida, when the rest of the nation is aware that, no, it was a big commercial jet that crashed in the World Trade Center. The president in Sarasota is getting information that a small twin-engine plane had crashed into the, into the World Tra Trade Center right around 9 o'clock, um, several minutes before the second plane crashes. Where, about the time the second plane crashes, as I had said before, um, Cheney's assistant advised him to turn on the television. Okay, so no one from the military has been in contact with Cheney. No one from the military has been in contact with, with the president by this time. And we have uh, an air attack against the United States in, in full swing with a second missile having hit the World Trade Center. 9.05, the president of the United States is informed of the second crash into the World Trade Center. Okay, he stays in the classroom with the children at Sarasota, Florida Elementary School for five to seven additional crucial minutes. Now, it's easy to judge that in hindsight. He had not been contacted by anybody from the military. Okay, it was probably, uh, he was probably trying to sort out what was occurring. He probably knew at this point that there wasn't an accident, but since he was not getting information from um, his advisors and had not been contacted by anyone in what I assume, and assuming is very dangerous in, in this situation, um, but one would think that he'd be getting some um, contact from people within the military about what was going on, and perhaps that would have happened had there been better communication between the FAA um, and the military with respect to what was going on in the air. But he has no information from um, anyone but the, but the news and Carl Rove and, and perhaps a couple other people, about the second crash into the World Trade Center. So at 9.15, which is about 12 minutes after the second plane crashes, um, the president goes to a holding room in Sarasota. He's briefed by his staff, and he sees the telev television coverage of what had transpired in New York. He speaks now um, to Cheney, Rice, um, the governor of New York, a couple other people, and uh, the FBI director, Robert Mueller. He decides to make a brief statement from the school before he leaves for the airport. The Secret Service is, is wanting to move him to a safer location at this point. So his staff are, at this point, busy arranging his return to Washington. Now, now think about this. There's a full-blown air attack going on against the United States, and the president is just getting news of this. He has not been in contact with, um, with, um, with, with anybody at the military from the military, apparently, and his staff are busy arranging his return to Washington so that he can find out what's going on with more clarity. 
Right, so he is operating in, in sort of an information vacuum, it appears. 925, okay, the White House um, conducted a video teleconference in the Situation Room. By this time, um, you know, Cheney is, I believe at this time, in the underground bunker that they've moved him there. Um, but there's a, a video teleconference conducted by Richard Clark, a special assistant to the president who'd been long involved in counterterrorism. The call included the CIA, the FBI, the State Department, the Department of Justice, um, the White House shelter, and later the Department of Defense and the FAA. Okay, but this is 9.25 a.m. Okay, this is after, um, after two planes have been hijacked, right about the same time that the Herndon Command Center advises the FAA that a third plane has hijacked. And... Um, two minutes before the last routine radio communication occurs with um, with United Airlines 93. Okay, at 9:33 a.m. Okay, the, there's a tower supervisor at Reagan National Airport who picks up a hotline. Again, another fortuitous thing. A tower supervisor at Reagan National Airport picks up a hotline to the Secret Service and tells the Secret Service there's an aircraft coming at you and not talking with us. Now, this is not the military contacting the Secret Service. This is a tower supervisor at Reagan National Airport. Sees this plane coming, has the wherewithal the hotline to the Secret Service, and advises the Secret Service that an air aircraft is coming and not, not talking with us. So the Secret Service starts making its own arrangements to take care of the president's, um, um, the president's safety. That's not normal protocol. Uh, yes. Okay, so it's, it's, it's a fortuitous, fortuitous communication. Um, well, I guess the the, um, the vice president, excuse me, was not in the bunker by 925. He's in the bunker by 936. Um, so he's in the bunker after the Secret Service gets um, um, this fortuitous communication from the tower supervisor at Reagan National Airport that there is a an airplane heading heading for you. Okay, so when does the Secret Service get this information on the hotline? The, um, the Secret Service gets the information on the hot, from the hotline at rather the um, a Secret Service hotline gets the information from the tower supervisor at 9:33. Well, three minutes later, they're immediately evacuating the uh, vice president, so they're moving pre they're moving him pre pretty quickly. The agents propel him from his chair and tell him he's got to get to the bunker. So they move pretty fast. The Secret Service does, and by 9:37, the vice president is in the tunnel. The Secret Service knows there's a plane coming uh, because the um, um, Reagan National Airport tower supervisor told them so, not the FAA. Not the military, but the Reagan Tower, Reagan National Airport Tower supervisor. Uh, I find that disturbing. Slightly. Okay, so um, you know we can go on and on with this, but uh, finally, it's not until after it's not until after the last plane crashes that you really get um, that you really get things coordinated at the top, where there are teleconferences going on that um, become. Be, begin to be productive in terms of um, the military fully figuring out what's going on, the president fully figuring out what's going on, and, um, you know, other high-level people, the FAA, okay? They coordinate together effectively only after the last plane has crashed. So you can see that there was, um, um, there was a great deal of confusion and a great deal of slow communication and fortuitous communications that, um, that, <laughs> That um, played a bigger part in our national air defense that day than um, our than our own government did. Uh, you know, we had we had uh, Boston Center. I think was very effective at the FAA. I think the Herndon National Command Center um, was less than effective at getting uh, getting its head out of the sand. It was trying to figure out what was going on internally, but didn't. Um, didn't have its mindset toward communication with outside agencies fast enough, and every time it contacted needs, as I said, it was too late, uh, too late for needs to respond. And your citizens on the ground knew what was going on faster. So, um, when we think about what what might have changed, um, what happened that day, and and it might be it might be fun for us or productive for us to say if we were legislators, okay, given this scenario and having gone through the chronology and figured out. Um, who got what information when and what was happening to these planes and who knew what kind of legislation would you like to see passed, okay, that would close some of these communication gaps. It would be very interesting to see what citizens themselves would come up with in terms of um, legislation that they would like to see to close these gaps. And then we can um, perhaps see, well, what did happen? Um, what did the legislation do that passed after 9-11? Did it take care of these communication deficiencies, or are we still pretty much in the same place we were before? The question is, I don't know yet. <laughs> the 
going to be fun for me to discover. The jury's out. You. That's part of why I'm doing The jury is out. So what would you like to have seen happen um, after 9-11 to improve, um, to, to eliminate the communication gaps that, that um, we've briefly identified as we've gone through the, the chronology? Well, for me, if you're to say you're asking, I'd like to see immediate immediate response or immediate some procedure in place that automatically knows every you knows what's going on and you know, I just think of social media and how quickly news spreads that way. Um we have the technology, but it's just a, a matter of setting up alerts and connecting to their appropriate parties so that information can travel quicker and uh, protocol so that decisions are made. And sometimes decisions have to be made that aren't always fun and nice, like grounding planes, but they seem to be somewhat necessary in protecting security. Sometimes you can't, you have to act first before uh, investigating getting all the details. My thoughts. Well, and I think in a situation like this, too, when you don't know what's going on in the air and you know there are hijacks, um, operate conservatively in the in the interest of safety and, and ground the planes. Again, this is all in hindsight. People didn't expect there to be a threat from coming from within. At least most people did not. Although as we go on with the series and we examine and we examine next time, um, why were the communication systems so cumbersome? How was the FAA structured? How was um, how was NORAD structured? How was NEED structured? Maybe we'll understand um, with greater specificity uh, why there were communication lags when we see how their, their their systems were set up or explore that a little bit. But um, I do think, and we discussed this a bit last time, that a system of simultaneous alerts is a very good idea with the simultaneous alerts um, operating in such a way that you have people at multiple levels understanding what's going on, and certainly at the top decision-making level, those people know as soon as the folks, almost as soon as the folks on the ground, that there's a situation in the air. So the communication can just be um, just be much more more fluid, much more um, um, just more, much more easily accessible to everyone at the same time and so that you can have people in conversation with each other um, right away. There ought to be channels um, whereby they're in immediate communication with each other when um, certain events when certain events happen, such as a domestic hijack that we now no longer have any excuse to look at naively. So that's something that I would like to see and it will be interesting as we explore the legislation to see, well, um, has anyone has anyone incorporated that kind of idea into into the legislation? What kinds of cures are there for um, the communication lags that um, existed on that existed on that day? Um, so that's what I'll be looking for in the legislation. I think next time we will um, take a look at how the how the government agencies that were responding that they were structured, but also uh, what I would I would like to look at, and it may take us two sessions to do this, is how did um, how did these people who plan these attacks plan them? How did they get into this country to plan them? Where was the breakdown there? Where was the breakdown um, that allowed people to come here to plan events? And where was the breakdown that let bad actors into the country in the first place? Now, we had talked a bit last time at the beginning of our, of our time together about um, early alerts that were coming through the um, screening process at the airports for some of these people. And those screening processes were actually pretty good, except that when somebody triggered, um, triggered the system, the, um, the only um, protocol to be followed then was just to check the baggage and, and if the baggage was okay or to check certain things to let the people um, back on the plane. And there was no more... Um, there was no more serious repercussion than that. I mean, it wasn't as though you triggered you triggered one of these systems and you were yanked from the flight. Okay, so that didn't happen. But the systems themselves were pretty good at picking up um, people from all the teams that ended up being in the air to orchestrate um, this attack within our within our country. So we'll want to take a look at um, all right. There were things that day that if they'd operated a little bit differently could have been effective, even though these people got in. But what we want to do is step back and say, how these people come get into our country? And how was it possible for um, some of them to come and plan what they planned? Where were their blinders there? Where were their blinders in our process? Because as you know, you've probably heard enough about um, changes in, um, you've probably heard enough about immigration in the media to understand that um, the system of the system of the immigration system is certainly part of the problem in in as much as it doesn't um, adequately track 
who comes in or isn't um, um, to the extent that there's not enough vigilance there to um, to ascertain who's coming in and who's going out. And a lot has been done in in the area of immigration. Some of it is quite draconian and perhaps targets the wrong people. So we'll 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 have some discussion about about that. Just exactly how much is needed to um, to make our um, Customs and Border Patrol and um, our immigration system um, more fail-proof in terms of um, the people that get into the country. I think a lot of Americans, because um, immigration is so much in the news, they they have such a fear of immigrants that um, that they shouldn't have because um, this country is a nation of immigrants, and immigrants have all, always brought brought great gifts and talents to. Um, to this country, and we owe a great deal to immigrants because that's who we are. Um, So we don't want to be draconian in our approaches to immigrants or um, have a phobia that way. We do want to keep um, bad people out, but there's been there's been so much concern over national security and so much of a link to immigration that uh, it's almost as though there is a uh, it almost encourages hatred against them. It's almost xenophobic. Uh, Encourages hatred of foreigners. We don't want that. Um, to be the case. We do want a system that works more effectively than it did um, at that time in terms of keeping um, keeping bad actors out. But we can talk about what goes on when, when people get visas in, in different parts of the world. Um, what do we need to be doing with immigration forms to get more valuable information that some of, than some of us uh, some of them allow us to get? I had joked with you a bit last time about the um, the I-485, which I have to I have to chuckle every time I have to use it to help <laughs> someone adjust status in the United States. I mean, I have a very careful screening process for my for, for my immigration clients. I like to know who I'm dealing with, but I chuckle at the I chuckle at the I-485 form because I look at the questions and it's I can hardly sometimes keep a straight face <laughs> when I when I when I go through the questions um, that, that that have that that are to the effect of. Um, have, have you come to the United States to commit espionage or to commit terrorist acts or things yeah, like that? Yeah, well, yeah, it's like, of course. It's like, it's like... It's like it's like it's like can't it's like okay we're we're paying people in the government um what a hundred thousand dollars or something a year to sit in those positions or they they earn good salaries isn't anybody smart enough and creative enough to come up with questions that would target um, a bad actor that are more sophisticated than that okay if someone's a really bad actor do you think he's going to answer those questions honestly at all it's really it's really dis- I mean it's really surreal it's like this yeah. is just a, such a stupid form I can't even I can't even abide it sometimes and I think you know our government officials get get paid good money, and they ought to be earning their money not by acting like bureaucrats, but being a little bit more creative in their thinking when they devise some of these, some of the questions on these forms. I mean, if I you agree. were really serious, if you were really serious about catching people involved in terrorism, it seems to me you would have, you would have questions about where they bank, okay, um, where do they have their money, okay, you would, you would demand to see things. I mean, it might get a little bit intrusive, and you'd have to be careful about that, but uh, I would want to see where the money goes. That's what I would want to know. Um, and maybe yeah. not about everybody. Maybe there would have to be something to trigger my interest in that. But um, I certainly don't feel very protected when I see those kinds of questions on immigration form. I agree. Um, I'm going to highlight. We have a couple minutes left. We're running out of time. Donna, I'm going to add. I want to uh, give a, um, some dates for some of Donna's other broadcasts here. We had on April 7th, we had the Civil Liberties Examined post-9-11. That's part one of this series. We had part two today. Also, I want to draw your attention to January 6, 2011, is Immigration for Employers with Donna Adler. Also, you can find U-Visas and Temporary Legal Immigration Status on December 2, 2010. And we also had the Class Action Fairness Act of 25. That is a August 9, 2010 broadcast. And finally, from uh, uh, February 25, 2010, Donna Adler on Class action lawsuits. So those are all in our archives that you can find on our Law Talk Radio page on Blog Talk Radio. Also with links you can find on our Facebook fan page. Donna, I want to thank you for your time again today. Thank you, Nick. I just want to make one correction in my website address. It is um, www.donnamadler and then repeat A-D-L-E-R-L-A-W-L-L-C.com. Oh, I appreciate that. Sorry about the uh, incorrect address. No, that's okay. Thank you for your time today. We also want to thank all of our uh, supporters out there, our commercial sponsors especially, advertising copy and intellectual property attorney, Nancy K. Ducharme. Second, executive coach, Mary Lane of Peak Marketing and Sales Incorporated. Third, law firm and business marketing and public relations agency known as Law Publicist Communications and ALRPRA Division. Also, attorney Jim Thompson of the Midwest Consulting Group and the Get Clients Now program. We also have 
uh, credit damage expert George Finder to thank, and software and technology attorneys at Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC. Now, again, by way of disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice. Communication with attorneys on the show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. Law Talk Radio does not necessarily endorse opinions expressed by guests. All callers remain confidential, and all rights as broadcast are reserved. Now, your Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and bring you, our attorney and non-attorney audiences, the tips, tools, and practice area information and news you can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers of legal services. With our guests and listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine, the law publicist for your Law Talk Radio, and I thank you for your time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.